This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Can and Robin Talk About Stuff? Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Game Balance. Knobs Farm Decapitations. Cosmic Horror Without Lovecraft. And Speeding Up Solar. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm, uh, so say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon. A quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And here on the Gaming Hut, oh, look at that. We've got our little miniatures arranged. We've got the Barbarian miniature there. Oh, the Fighter miniatures over there. And we got the Cleric miniatures kind of in the middle, and the Mage miniature keeps moving back and forth between them. The Ranger's way over the chimney Christmas. I, he's practically <laughs> off the table. Uh, Robin, I believe that what our miniatures are attempting to display graphically is something that we perhaps should explain gravitically, <laughs> because we're talking about the concept of game balance, something that I normally say the pernicious concept of game balance, but I'm willing to accept that for other GMs in other games, it exists, just as I'm willing to accept that dark matter exists, even though physicists are a bunch of liars. Robin, what do you got for me? Right. So game balance is one of those terms that has been uh, around in tabletop role playing since the beginning of the forum, basically. Yeah. And uh, like a lot of those terms has accreted many meanings to it and may mean <laughs> different things to different people. Yeah, they do. And one of the things you're sort of beginning to drive at is that I think this is more of an interest of players. And I would submit also a subset of players than it is of GMs because it is something that you experience as a player. If you have a game where uh, you're playing the bard, somebody else is playing the mage, and the mage is always better at you than doing everything on your character sheet, that is a drag. And uh, that is a specific type of game balance that we talked about before called shtick preservation. Uh, but I think people also expect a lot of different things, not just characters, but uh, sometimes uh, elements of the game to be balanced. And so uh, we're uh, looking at uh, what exactly that means, why it's bad, why you might not want to worry about it, as you uh, suggest. And so uh, let's look, I guess, at the beginning of, of why you think that game balance is uh, is pernicious and to be mocked and, and uh, scoffed at, because I'm 
I'm sort of there with you, but then on the other hand, I think I know what players are driving at. Yeah, I mean, I I do accept that in games that descend more closely from miniatures role-playing, where you literally do have to balance out your armies because each one counts a certain number of points, and so you have to, you know, figure out how many cavalry and how many catapults and whatever else, and that technology then did not quite make the jump to Dungeons and Dragons past the miniature stage so that you have characters that act a little more like cavalry and characters that act a little more like catapults. And it's not really clear which is the best one. And then if you are valuing characters solely as um, uh, in their kill rate, obviously you begin to see some characters really outperform their stats uh, the ranger. And so I believe that in a game that is solely about tactical throw weight that exists with a, in the, in a world almost entirely of measured combats and that parcels out experience based on individual character performance, as well as parcels out fun based on individual character performance. See the first two aspects of that, that you can indeed feel a little ground if someone else is really, really good at playing the elf ranger and you are not so great at playing the gnome illusionist. And sure enough, you're not really getting your share of the solid gold goodies, either metaphorically or physically. That said, even in F20 games, I find that to be ridiculously limited and narrow way of playing. And certainly a ridiculously unlimited narrow way of GMing and eight years of playing call of Cthulhu taught me, or rather of running call of Cthulhu taught me that regardless of players, tiny pettifogging concerns, there is literally nothing that they can do to overbalance the literal rest of the universe, which is the GM. And so therefore being over concerned. And this is where I specifically come down on it because as you see, I believe meaning has shifted that the notion that a game is unbalanced in favor of the players is what I would exactly put my, uh, my angry nail of, uh, condemnation on and say, the players are the protagonists. They're the main characters. They're the people whose fun is paramount. All of those things is true. Therefore, overbalanced in favor of the players could be translated and often is as there's a danger they might accomplish things and have fun. They might control the narrative if we, we have let to them get out of that. hand. They may control the narrative. They may get to choose stuff. They may have agency. Robin, we can't allow that. That'd be like they were, oh, I don't know, voters in Chicago. You know, we have to keep them ground down and um, uh, and immiserated, just like voters in Chicago. And so, therefore, it's important as a designer, especially, but almost as importantly as a GM, to understand that that definition of play balance, the notion that, oh, the players can drive the narrative too fast, is pernicious because it leads you, best case scenario to just sit there futilely stamping your feet on the floor like a dad in a car next to a teenage driver or worse yet to try and grab the wheel away or stomp on the brake like a driving instructor next to a teenage driver. And that is disaster because that ruins the participatory nature of it. It ruins the collaborative nature of it. And it generally steps on what was probably a pretty fun idea because the players came up with it and wanted to do it. So that aspect of game balance is the specific one that I decry as pernicious. The other one I can understand exists in some modes and cults of play, but I feel like anyone 
who is at all good as an F-20 game master should be able to write and run a scenario such that piddling questions of can the barbarian take three double-bladed axe hits to the face while no one else can become moot in the, in the longer term of things that there's some battles where face axing is a, is a gift. There's another where being a tiny little illusionist should be a gift because you are designing the environment for your players, or at least you are running the environment for your players, not for some generic set of math figures. Right. And it all matters on, I think the question is, is in what frame is it balanced? So as you suggest, if the game is entirely tactical, the good old-fashioned values of making sure that uh, everybody's uh, powers are, are roughly equal over time, given the GM's ability to confront them with different encounters, uh, does matter, uh, especially if people get, as you point out, uh, experience points at different rates, and therefore there's a covert element of PvP going on in them. Uh, but if you widen the frame to, well, Hitting things is just one of the things we do in the game, and uh, sometimes you need to go into the village and uh, win over the farmers. So the uh, priestess who has the bless earth uh, power, given the right obstacle, actually is the one who has the super hosey power that everyone can be jealous of because you can just go in and win over farmers all day long. And ultimately, a game is balanced if everybody at the table who wants a share of the fun, uh, because there may be a casual player who just sort of wants to spectate and uh, treat the rest of the game as if they're watching it on, on YouTube, somebody's actual play, that <laughs> everybody has a chance to shine and do something cool and something that is within the shtick of their character. And of course, that leaves it up more to the uh, GM to be able to adapt to the uh, orders being placed for them on the character sheet. So it's, oh, we have an Earth Priestess and uh, I got to figure out a way to keep her alive when they all go down into the dungeon and I guess uh, there's going to have to be some earth elementals for her to talk to. And then there's farmers up top or, you know, even mushroom farmers down below, depending on, on what it is. And so uh, game balance depends on, on a collaboration between the rule set and the assumptions of what the characters are doing and then what the actual expectations of the, the players are. I guess the other sort of steel man case for game balance in the old fashioned player v player sense is superhero games, which of course is on my mind because I'm running a superhero game for my Monday game group. And you know, the old question of how does Superman and Batman stay balanced worse yet? How do green lantern and green arrow stay balanced? Batman at least is cool. And, and, and so the, the question is, you know, how do you run and design a supers game such that, Playing Green Arrow is not immediately the act of a of a mug or Hawkeye, uh, the the even worse Green Arrow, if there were such a thing. Um, how do you do that so that such that that's not the act of a mug, and so that the player who takes that mug option can be rewarded mechanically uh, because Super's games by and large rely on their mechanics. There are others that, that do so less. And I think those move us into, well, the GM should just put more archery contests uh, in between in alien invasions. Um, and that's the GM's job to do that. But I think that you can look at the sort of the other steel man of game balance between characters question as designing superhero game systems or uh, to a somewhat lesser extent playing superhero game systems so that you can have a good feel so that all the members of the team are contributing. And it's not just, well, we're just killing pages until Superman comes around and obliterates everything with his heat vision. Right. I think that's another fair case for the design half of, of game balance. Don't you? 
I mean, you designed a supers game, Robin. Help me right. out here. And, and so uh, th- that's exactly the the thing is that you want to find a way for uh, in the long run every superpower in a superpower game to be as useful as every other superpower, and the exact number of dump trucks that the Hulk can lift uh, versus the number of you know arrows that Hawkeye can shoot is not a point of comparison. That and again, as you point out, that's a matter of making sure there's enough arrow sized problems for. Uh, the uh, archer to uh, fire at. Um, and there's also the idea that other things in the world should be balanced against each other. And again, I think it depends on the complexity of the rule set and how much it's attempting to be uh, a tactical or even simulative game so that if you have a spell that is extremely useful and it's at first level and it feels like it should be at third because that's the only spell any magic user is going to take because it's so good, you might start to think, well, is that in there to balance that character against other characters, or is that an example of uh, mistaken game balance that it's, uh, you know, if you just make something a no brainer, that makes the whole rest of the spell list at that level uh, irrelevant. But then, you know, players kind of like no brainer abilities that make them feel really Mm -hmm. smart for having done the super obvious thing. There's also the idea that if you're simulating, for example, all sorts of, you know, hand to hand weapons in an F20 environment that, Every single weapon that has ever existed in the history of mankind must surely have positive and negative factors to it that all balance out with one another so that any character might take any weapon and prosper with it. But in reality, yeah. people tend to gravitate toward the one weapon that's available to them that's the best, most killingest weapon, and they use that if they've got it. And, of course, often availability is the constraint on that in the real world, whereas uh, characters in a role-playing game the availability of weapons is a problem for a very brief point of the beginning of uh, some early F20 games, and that's about it. So is game balance then just a way for players to say, I don't like this ill playtested power that allows this person (laughs) to do this thing that seems like a cheat, that seems too easy for them to do, or uh, that uh, overcomes certain obvious obstacles and, and or makes my character feel irrelevant because there are certain abilities that can't really work the way they work in fiction because it just makes things too easy, like uh, invisibility or flying uh, is a big becomes a big tactical yes. problem when yes. uh, things can fly. But is that a, a game balance issue per se, or is that just sort of part of the whole feeling where, uh, as you point out, the players want to be able to fly. When they can fly, they can do things easily and circumvent certain obstacles that used to be hard for them. But guess what? You can easily make a different obstacle that flying won't help with. Yep, add flying villains. That was that was Germany's solution in World War One. It seemed to work for them until it didn't. The, the question of game balance as game balance within a character's possible arsenal of tools is another interesting question because, like you say, sleep seems gratuitously overpowered, but on the other hand, it helps balance out the fact that the mage has a die four hit points. So he needs something gratuitously overpowered or he's just going to be smeared up against the wall every day. Likewise, you know, why are we ever using anything else except a great sword? Well, um, it turns out that most people didn't use a great sword because it was expensive and hard to carry. But again, you're a fantasy character. Go ahead, knock yourself out. So the those sorts of questions, I think, sort of move into 
what flavor of game am I the designer attempting to get? And so if, if you don't mind a notion where every so often a bunch of bad guys can be put to sleep or your heroes can just all be uh, carrying identical great swords, if that doesn't harsh your mental version of, of what your game should look like, then who cares? But if what you want is for everyone to have their own iconic weapon, then you need to provide some sort of mechanical Philip to allow that to, even if it's not true for everybody, it's true for that character that going into battle with a bill hook is much better than going into battle with a great sword. And so therefore it makes logical sense. Right. And that's because you're so incredibly skilled with the bill hook that that's, that's your thing and you're Mr. Bill Hook and maybe you've gone to Bill Hook Mountain and, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, well, having gone to Bill Hook Mountain, it's time for us to climb down, however, and see what lies. I think there's some a commercial in the mist and then there's some foothills and uh, uh, perhaps even a dig. You listen to the show. You have the Pelgrain greatest hits. But do you have the deep cuts? From now until Monday, September 6th, you can pick up the Pelgrain deep cut PDF bundle from the Pelgrain shop. At a deep cut price. It includes Skullduggery, the role-playing game of verbal fireworks and sudden reversals. The Gaian Reach, the role-playing game of interstellar vengeance. Its companion, the Gaian Reach Gazetteer, an exhaustive cataloging of the planets and places of Jack Vance's classic science fiction. Cycle. Owl Hoot Trail, a gritty Clint Eastwood Western set in a hostile fantasy world where the outlaw on the other side of the gulch might be a one-eyed half-elf or ornery Catobulpus. And Lorefinder, merging the action-oriented fantasy rules of the Pathfinder role-playing game with the mystery-solving investigative elegance of Gumshoe. Round them up together, buckaroos. And Space Machiavellians. And Mighty Third Detectives. For a deep cut of 25% off. That's Skullduggery, the Guy in Reach, the Guy in Reach Gazetteer, Alahoot Trail, and Lorefinder. All together at the Pelgrane Shop at PelgranePress.com. Pithy sayings being said by people wearing pith helmets, the fine dust of particulate matter being brushed off of uh, precious artifacts, and the ping of the LIDAR. I assume LIDAR pings, that's uh, my assumption. Uh, tell us that we're once more in the archaeology hut. If it doesn't, they set it up next to the pinging thing. Oh, there you go. If You can always bring in a pinging thing if you need a ping. Right. Because uh, beloved Patreon backers Liz and Siski would love to know more about the extraordinary burial site found in Cambridgeshire. And uh, this is a late Roman era site from the, the late period of uh, Roman Britain in uh, what's now called Nobbs Farm in Somersham. And uh, they have done an archaeological dig here and discovered, Ken, a lot of skeletons. And not the kind of skeletons that come rising up from the grave to, uh, to hit you with their swords, at least not so far, but ones that leave us with an interesting historical puzzle because disproportionately a lot of people in this particular uh, cemetery or set of cemeteries were beheaded to death. Yeah. They, they show all the signs of having been executed, often uh, while uh, lying down, and, uh, and sometimes they were done away with with a single hit. Sometimes there were signs of multiple hits. But there's a lot of people who've been executed and put uh, in these cemeteries. And, and Ken, what does that tell us 
about this place and, and what does the rest of the archaeological uh, site have to say about this? Let me just begin with a big shout out to the University of Cambridge, which put the entire dig report online without having to sign into anything. Good for them. I lie. You have to sign in to get the entire, entire dig report, which goes into like types of plants found at the site. But the, the part we all care about, the weird burials, uh, that's just right up there. So good for you, University of Cambridge. Beat Oxford. Go. Anyway, Somersham is in Cambridgeshire. It's on the edge of the Fen country. At the time of the Roman era, it was basically, it had begun as farms of the Iceni and the people who supported Boudicca. So you can guess what happened shortly after Boudicca's rebellion. That's right. It became, we hate to say slave farms, but let's say plantations, certainly. And uh, you know what? We don't hate to say slave farms because by the time of these cemeteries, they probably were either enslaved workers or they were serfs, one or the other. And so the uh, Nobs farm was a crop processing center. Basically, once the Romans moved in and started to build cities, the population of the island, after a brief Boudicca influenced dip, began to climb again. The cities got bigger. They needed more food. They needed food not just to feed the city nearby Duro Vigutum, which is modern Godmanchester, but also Londinium and even export grain to Europe. So there is a large agricultural establishment several miles up and down what was at that time sort of the coast of the, of the country or the edge of the fens. There's a logistic complex that they've excavated at a place called Colne Fen, not to be confused with any of the other million places in Britain named Colne. This one is the one in Cambridgeshire uh, near Erith, and that had its peak at around 250 to 325. The uh, Knobs Farm, uh, interestingly, basically was abandoned by the time that Colne Fen began to have its peak. They uh, finished using it around 225 AD, and that is when the first cemetery, the first grave that we found at Knobs Farm was dug. Now, all of this comes with the giant caveat that the entire middle part of Knobs Farm or at least of that uh, settlement, was dug up and carried away because people were quarrying rock there. And so they just tore out the settlement and moved it. And of course, the rock is where you build the city in the Cambridge Fens, because that is... That, that's where the city won't <laughs> the part that's not a fan it won't it won't it, it's not a fan yeah i guess I, that's the, the the fastest way to say that so we don't know much about the actual town if there was one that these graves uh, were on the edge of so that said the town was abandoned or the site was abandoned as far as anyone can tell uh just like a similar site at langdale hale which is a couple of miles south that seems to have been removed to fen drove farther south from colne that flourished through the fourth century AD, but that whole site was turned into a gravel quarry in the seventies, Robin. So nobody knows anything about it, except that it did have a weird shrine, a tiny little weird shrine with an enclosure ditch full of female burials, which is interesting. And that would be third century burials, not burials back when they might've been Boudicca's, uh, uh, you know, knitting club that also got executed. This is, you know, just a bunch of dead women in this Roman agricultural area. Uh, they found a, a bronze statue at it, or they think at it because it was immediately stolen and they had to buy it back uh, at Sotheby's or I guess threatened to prosecute it back uh, at Sotheby's. And the, uh, the little weird statue 
might have been a druid or he might have been the genius loci. And so we're just going to put a pin in that. We've got a weird little bronze genius loci uh, just a couple of miles down the road causing trouble. So these three cemeteries continue to get dug in this now abandoned farm area. And Cemetery 2 is is dug out around 275 uh, to 325 AD. Then they go back a generation later and dump more bodies, often in the same graves. And then in Cemetery 3 is the latter part of the 4th century, so 350 to 395. And they've dated this mostly from grave goods. And partially from the bones in Cemetery 3 were fresh enough that they still had some uh, uh, some uh, carbonaceous matter that they could do C14 tests on. Right. And, and some of the other skeletons, there aren't even any bones left. They're simply sand shadows. Very cool. Which is, which is a, a great little detail that uh, next time that your investigators are digging up an old grave, it's like, oh, that's a bunch of sh- sand shadows. And former that That's so uh, great and evocative. And that's just like... There's there's just the tiniest little trace of you uh, left. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of these uh, grave goods that people are buried with include uh, these miniature decorative pots. Mm-hmm. So uh, at this time, if you want to commemorate your deceased or possibly just executed loved one, you just uh, there's a little pot and it might say something about uh, who you were or uh, so that was your little uh, remembrance or, or uh, act of mourning to place this uh, next to a uh, a body. And there are other uh, items as as well, right? Yeah, there's a there's a very few things that are technically grave goods. Most of those are, as you say, pots. There is a one woman who was buried with a comb and with coal, sea coal beads, a, a necklace made out of sea coal. But they think she was just wearing those when they chopped her head off and dumped her into the grave. Uh, so who can say? Uh, there are no hobnails found, so they have ruled out any of these being soldiers, soldiers often were buried with their boots, you know, ceremonially. And so you find hobnails in about 5% of uh, Romano-British grave sites. There's none in these. Uh, what there are, as you say, is lots of decapitations, 17 out of 52, and prone burials, people buried on their face, 13 out of 52, both indicate that the person being buried was not well thought of by the person doing at least the executing and possibly the burying. Right. And this brings us to the question of why so many executions. And exactly at this point, the uh, Roman Empire is uh, beginning to fray pretty decidedly and especially out on its outer fringes in this uh, backwater of, uh, of Britain. And I think early on in, in Rome, their capital punishment is actually pretty rare, especially if you're a person of means, you can just buy your way out of it, especially if you kill someone of lower rank. But here we see lots of people uh, being executed, which indicates a sort of a fraying political stability. And the fact that many of these people are women, I think, heavily suggests that they were uh, troublemakers uh, to the authorities who uh, had the executing power. And that's why they're uh, anathematizing them by uh, burying them uh, prone. And uh, this is because there were other crimes that people could be executed for at this point, like murder or theft. Uh, but another big one was desecration of shrines. And cynical person that I am, I think that this is a crime that you can pin on someone you want to get rid of. As I, yeah, I saw, you know, that weird bronze statue that we don't know what it is. Well, you were desecrating it, lady, and uh, tired of hearing all of your fomenting against me. Uh, you're uh, bad for morale. Uh, execution time. Your fancy so I think comb. This, we're seeing the one of those situations where uh, you know people uh, with authority whose authority is challenged 
starting to go blood simple. And I'm imagining yeah. a situation, perhaps even a scenario where the authorities have uh, gone uh, chopping people's heads off crazy. And uh, the player characters are the ones who are uh, trying to uh, survive, perhaps even rebel against uh, this authority without themselves winding up face down in a uh, mass cemetery that used to be a farm. Right. It's still, even for the fourth century, it's a lot of beheadings. Uh, people will say um, in, in your uh, cheap and easy things that don't involve digging all the way through the archaeological report, that it's only about two to 3% of burials in Britain are decapitated. Well, that goes up to about 10% of burials by the fourth century. Uh, but here we have a third of the burials are decapitated. So that's still high. So as you say, there does seem to have been some sort of either a moral panic or a boiling series of slave rebellions. Uh, either one are possible. I think the moral panic makes a uh, a more fun magic-y story, whereas uh, the Boiling Slave Rebellion can be sort of a, a generic, your um, proto-Merlins and King Arthurs coming out of the British Wildy Woods to fight off the hated Romans, and uh, sure enough, they're panicking and killing their slaves, and you have to overthrow uh, this Roman uh, logistical port and stop them from feeding their, their garrison with it. And that uh, can be a, a fun, you know, a Stalag prison break sort of adventure. Or you can say, well, one of the reasons there's a bunch of slave revolts is that the, the Roman masters have turned to the worship of dark gods. Uh, they're worshiping Magna Mater and, and, and creepy, uh, other, uh, entities. And, uh, and, and so they've begun to, as you say, go blood simple and just start executing people because they love the death energy. And, uh, it's also possible that the local genius loci up in that little area in Fen Grove, uh, he was getting lonely and he wanted some company. And so he was sort of uh, temple style, just inspiring people to send him uh, servants in the afterlife. And uh, I think it's a lot to lay on the little genius loci who's just a curly headed little fat God. But, you know, you don't want to be turned into a, a evil scenario. Don't leave your bronze statue where you can be found. That, I think, is a standard rule of genius loci. Right, Robin? Right. Uh, in some cases, the heads have been uh, placed by the feet of the corpses. Which, uh, which, which is in, standard in what practice. might be fanciful, but I'm going to keep it, is yeah. an idea that uh, they're preventing their spirits from rising. Because, of course, uh, if you're suddenly executing people willy-nilly, you don't want to deal with their ghosts. Um, another possibility, of course, is that uh, people were coming back from the grave, and uh, this is uh, what you had to do to put them down a second time. So this mm -hmm. might have been the site of some sort of zombie uprising. But it does seem like the people were... Uh, killed at the site of their burial and mm -hmm. uh I, I think and in uh, many cases kneeling with their uh arms tied behind their back right and it's a lot of interesting cool background to waste on you know just another zombie uprising you can do that anywhere mm -hmm. in any period for me the the interestingest question is why did they dig a new cemetery possibly three five miles away from wherever the the uprising was happening, right? Why go all the way up to the abandoned farm at um, uh, Somersham, uh, at Nobbs Farm, rather than just bury them in the area of Fendrove? And and it, and again, they might have buried a ton of people in the area of Fendrove, but it all got turned into gravel in the seventies. So <laughs> hope hope you enjoyed your gravel uh, labor government. But but the question of why are they taking these people from? this place to what is a, a, a day's journey, really. It's 10 miles from the city to, to execute them. What's, well, if you've, what's you've, the situation if you've got a there? rebellion, right. you're worried about martyrs, 
You're rude mm-hmm. but angry family members. Maybe you want to hide all this executing you're doing. Mm. Maybe you are uh, just sort of some sub-governor, sub-administrator, and you don't want to admit to the bosses that the, your execution rate is three times of anywhere else in Roman Britain. Mm-hmm. And so you're doing what people who engage in massacres do all the time throughout history, which is they're hiding the evidence. Right? They hide like, the evidence. Let's go bury this at the old farm nobody uses, and it will take a day for any of their relatives to, yeah. to, to get to. But make sure you bury them with their little pots, or else they'll get thirsty in the afterlife and come back and drink our blood. Exactly. It's all about protecting you from having them come back. So move the head, give them a pot, do everything you can to buy them off so that they don't uh, come back after you. So it, it really does seem to me like a thing that just spiraled out of control in uh, – in the good old Cambridgeshire and uh, whatever local officer was, uh, was supposedly in charge was think things were just not getting out of hand, frankly, getting yep. out of hand. Yep. Just have to, just have to show a strong, strong presence. Can't let Roman prestige be, uh, be questioned, not out here at the back of beyond. And of course, if you want to do the more conventional thing, uh, of course it suggests there's also a suggestion that they were ritual killings. The evidence doesn't uh, support that, but, you can fictionalize that away. You can put it mm-hmm. somewhere next door to Cambridgeshire and have this a place where your contemporary uh, PCs uh, go to dig up to find, uh, you know, what particular demon known to the Romans has uh, escaped and is uh, uh, trundling about uh, looking for, uh, you know, garum and uh, agricultural workers to devour. Or since human sacrifice is illegal in Britain, if you are a dark druid or a cultist of Moloch or some other human sacrifice type guy, what better place to hide your ritual murder than in the secret cemetery full of executed slaves, right? That the Roman cover-up is also your cover-up. And so in a proper Roman noir game, investigating the one destroyed Discovers the greater sin of the whole society, right? That you're not just running down a bunch of human sacrificers. You're also implicating the whole agricultural industry in uh, Cambridgeshire in this uh, policy of secret burials and mass murders of women in Fendrove. And that this is, you know, the, the organized uh, mass murder that the uh, mere ritual sacrifice is uh, just an exciting uh, road into, right? That, that would be a terrific Roman noir. Yeah. I would, I would Forget watch it, that. Jake Gideon. It's Cambridgeshire town. It's, it's got, it's Nobbs farm. It's Duravagudum. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, escape from this uh, dread area and uh, perhaps into another subject that surely won't involve horror of any kind. Not horror. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. 
Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on drive through. Stop the mage of underfunding from overwhelming the bard of creative podcasting. Joining well-balanced Patreon backers like... Matthew Preston. Michael Kuhl. Ian Carlson. Dreaming Johnny. And Ben Brigoff. The clanking of chains, the whistling of ghosts, and the weird radiance from the meteor in the crater... Usher us into the horror hut, where beloved Patreon backer Elias Helfer has asked, how do you do cosmic horror without any Lovecraft in it? Elias, one of that dowdy breed of super purists, or perhaps uh, Lovecraft allergics, looks for other cosmic horror. And I guess, you know, I have a lot of answers, but Robin... You've done a cosmic horror without Lovecraft in it. What do you got? Let's look at what the ingredients of cosmic horror would be, because there are all sorts of Lovecraftian gestures that are uh, not necessarily inherently cosmic. So the emphasis on uh, spells and magic might not uh, go in there. You might not have a motif of being freaked out by sea creatures, especially sea creatures on land. Uh, Tentacles might not come into it. But what definitely comes into cosmic horror is the a question of your own insignificance, not only in the world, but in the, the greater cosmos, hence the word. And so this is the horror of alienation, the dread that comes from discovering that you are very small, that you're insignificant, and indeed that whatever philosophical system that you've erected in order to justify your life and your existence, your uh, sense of morality, they're all just in the great time scale of uh, geologic and uh, metageologic time just utterly irrelevant and you your concerns are meaningless and uh, your ability to frame the universe is inherently flawed so i think the the thing that you keep from lovecraft is the idea of peering behind the curtain correlating the contents of what's really going on and then confronting that utter breakdown and i think the other element is that it's not even necessarily a fight against evil, although some of the forces you encounter may be malign. And since it's horror, they might, you know, chew your leg off or come out of you like a chestburster. But ultimately, they're there to prove that, uh, you know, uh, nothing matters, man. Nothing matters. Yep. And that uh, among those things that don't matter are your bodily integrity, certainly, is one possibility. But I think that a good instructive way to sort of think about cosmic horror without Lovecraft would be to read the cosmic horror that predates Lovecraft. So specifically, uh, you would point to, say, The Willows by Algernon Blackwood, probably the greatest story of cosmic horror ever written, even better than Colorado Space, some would say. And Colorado Space, although it is Lovecraft, has nothing barring the word Arkham in common with the rest of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos in terms of motifs or things like that. What it has is the sense of literal cosmic, uh, not even malignity, but the normal actions of the cosmos 
will destroy you and they'll destroy you purposely or they'll destroy you accidentally. It doesn't matter. You're just as destroyed anyway, because guess what? Purpose doesn't matter because morality doesn't matter. Yes. And, and doom is arbitrary. Right. And so it is the combination of powerlessness and scope that are the sort of, I think the sort of the nub all the way down of cosmic horror that the notion of your, your, your morality or your worldview having no value is, is, a, is a big part of that. But I think that is a conclusion you come to merely from contemplating scope and powerlessness. And, uh, you know, Melville famously found cosmic horror in, in the Bible where he was saying, if this is even half true, this is awful. <laughs> We're really doomed. And, you know, he grew up amongst Calvinists. So obviously he was half right. But the, but the question of, you know, presenting any sort of human activity as ridiculously small next to the profundity and enormity of the universe is the key note of cosmic horror. And the trouble with it is it's very hard to sustain. I mean, Willows does it because Algernon Blackwood was a visionary genius. Color Out of Space does it for about two thirds of its length. Lovecraft never wrote anything as perfect and as cosmically horrible as that, although he hits slightly higher notes for much shorter times in others of his works that are actual mythos. But that tenor of failure and eventually discovering even the question of failure is irrelevant and that the best you can hope as in the willows is that the current keeps you moving through it and you go away and never find out what that was. That does not generally produce a super satisfying game session at the table, which to the extent that we are concerned with that is I think the big question. And it is why Lovecraft's particular persecutory delineation of cosmic horror makes for such great gaming is because it does have that uh, human scale element. It does not just is the universe malign and horrible, but enough of it has tainted and filtered and poisoned things that ought to be nice, like fishes or New Englanders, that horror is everywhere you look and you are always being beset. And so you can add the vastly more playable horror of paranoia to the mix. And that, of course, is is Lovecraft's other sort of great psychological contribution to cosmic horror. Right. Because the, the thing is, is that confronting a cosmic force, confronting an abstract idea is difficult, except in the examples we've already given, to make interesting and, and certainly difficult to keep doing over and over again. And so what you see in Lovecraft is that very often the antagonists are people who are aware of the indifference of the cosmos, yet are misreacting to it. And so they are worshiping indifferent deities, for example, as if they are malign. And it is the people who uh, have engaged with the irrelevance of humanity and taken the wrong lesson from it mm -hmm. and are therefore trying to summon a god or eat everybody who comes into their village or uh, whatever it is who become the active antagonist who can offer a palpable threat to the yep. Uh, narrators or the, the uh, protagonists. It, it's um, like they're tiny people in a bathtub worshiping the toaster. Exactly. And so that gives you a sort of human scale antagonism that the mere idea of cosmic horror lacks. And so that's something that you could definitely continue to do in different ways. And Lovecraft's primary way to do it is to make them cultists. Um, mm -hmm. And I think if you do that without uh, using the Lovecraftian gods, it's still going to feel like him. But there are all sorts of other forces that could be reacting to uh, the indifference of the universe and doing horrible things that make them palpable antagonists that you can uh, confront 
and get away from or escape or be murdered by. So, for example, it turns out that people who believe that nothing they do matters are are psychopaths. <laughs> yes. Therefore, they make terrific villains. <laughs> yes. Or it's like, well, you know, everybody, everybody else is going to be crushed by their knowledge of cosmic indifference. But I, I, the superior being, will use it as a means of conquest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, that, again, makes them a, a great villain. So you could have, you know, uh, Lovecraft uses some scientists, but I think you could lean on scientists more as villains. You could lean on just sort of the, you know, causality doesn't matter. Morality doesn't matter. Well, I've always thought a lot about murdering people, so now I'm going to go and do that. Or there's the whole idea of people who were heavily invested in the sense of an order of a uh, rationality to society in the universe who would then, once they discover that, they crack and then they become your villains. And of course, that concept is also very much part of Robert uh, Chambers' uh, The Yellow King stories. I wouldn't describe those as as cosmic. In fact, that's part of what makes spinoffs of that more accessible and easier to do because the king and perhaps his daughter's and anyone else in thrall to the yellow sign are more easily accessible conventional villains that you can wrap your mind around and come up with uh, plots. Chambers himself, as you say, is not cosmic horror, but a three-dimensional appreciation of Chambers turns it into cosmic horror because Chambers is, as as you've said, often a reality horror, the, the argument that there is no reality that is fixed and that it can slip out from under you at any time is the horror and that, if you look at that from above, you say, oh, well, if there's no reality, therefore, etc., cosmic irrelevance. But on the ground where Chambers puts it, uh, it's super relevant and it's super important. And there is a sense of, of moral failing and sin as this other reality uh, washes over you. And I, and I agree that is that is much more accessible. And, and interestingly, it is less mined out. Uh, on that level than either Lovecraftian style cosmic horror or Robert Block style cosmic horror, which is the horror of the psychopath that I mentioned earlier that, you know, you have the, instead of the, the sort of the universal reaction, the our archeological dig has found something awful. It becomes our neighbor is something awful because he doesn't follow the rules just like, you know, the universe doesn't. And that is the, the, the sort of the personalized way. And that's overdone just as much. I think Blockian horror is just as overdone as Lovecraftian horror in that sense. So, you know, hitting that sweet spot with chambers is different. And I think that finding the big, you know, sort of implacable, oppressive universe is harder to do without Lovecraft because he did it so amazingly well. And even Thomas Ligotti, you know, who does it as well as anyone ever did, is mostly telling stories of personal disintegration under it, as opposed to stories of the sort of, you know, procedural version that, that we're talking about, where you have a, a series of obstacles to, to overcome. He, in fact, sort of mocks that sort of story in Nether Scurial, but you could certainly do a story game, sort of a game or a lyric game in which your goal is as players to come to grips with the failure of your life to mean anything and be crushed by it. And that is your experience. And there, there you don't have to have any cults or anything. You just have to have something perceivably beyond your capacity to affect or understand that 
for whatever reason is rolling over you right now. And right. that doesn't have to be malign. It, you can just be, you're, well, you're in the wrong part of the Danube River, lucky ducks. So get ready for nature. Yeah. And, and one last literary name check before we go, it would be J.G. Ballard, specifically in the, the Atrocity Exhibition, mm-hmm. where there's definitely a level of political and moral horror there, but it's within a framework where uh, causality has literally broken down and the threads between reality and who the characters are from chapter to chapter is completely altered in a way that suggests, you know, that the uh, chamber's reality horror has resulted in a complete breakdown of anything other than sort of associative meaning, but the sense of horror continues uh, between them. But here we're entering a much more sort of rarefied uh, literary horror where again, there's no procedural element to it because a procedural storyline implies causality. And in <laughs> the atrocity exhibition, causality has collapsed. And uh, basically, finally, the novel itself collapses into itself, uh, which is not an error on Ballard's part, but <laughs> no. it was the, the entire point of the exercise. And, and, and Ballard obviously was, you know, openly said, yes, I'm influenced by Lovecraft. I, I think Lovecraft is, you know, starting what I'm finishing. So, you know, removing Lovecraft from the equation easier if you're thinking of it solely in terms of sort of fetishes and tropes you know tentacles irrelevant to cosmic horror william hope hodgson did it with a pig so anyone can do it with anything but the the question of taking you know lovecraft's influence and 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 larger philosophical methods out well the the problem there is he's the the greatest living exponent of it so you he's can't living. do it. That's yeah. a scoop. Right. Yes. Well, you know, he's living in our hearts and minds. Yeah. He's the greatest exponent. Oh, he's ever. in my heart. Oh. Ah, get him. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry, Robin. That, don't worry. That's just a tiny little rat wizard. That's fine. Okay. Um, you got that. I feel much better with that. Yes. Well, maybe we should go and get our hearts and minds checked out because now that I've said that out loud, that does sound really creepy and, and awful. Um, and then we can enjoy a an, an ad perhaps to take our mind off the notion that something large and terrible might crush us at any time. Yes, not a palate cleanser, but a aorta cleanser. Right. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing
The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chrono time cells were once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which is, of course, the conveyance that Ken's superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, uh, the chrono intervention that you have been presented with is speeding up the widespread adoption of solar power. So, Ken, tell us how you do it, and does it involve Charles Fritz? Well, I'm sure it does, but uh, I guess let's begin with good old Charles Fritz, since you brought him up. Charles Fritz is the first guy to ever purely produce electricity through the photovoltaic effect. A guy named Edmund Becquerel, who you may have heard of as the guy that Becquerels are named after, discovered that light will generate electricity, but he didn't do anything with it. He was like, well, that's a fun thing you can do with electricity. Very busy. Got to go. And Charles Fritz in 1882 builds a selenium wafer that will take in light and turn it into transmissible electricity. And he has 1% efficiency with that. 1% efficiency, everybody. For the Victorian era. Yeah. That said, he is well behind the, the road of actually producing useful power with the thing because that was first done by a fellow named Robert Sterling in the north of England um, who came up with something called a heat engine or a Sterling engine, as it is called now. And that basically involves getting hot air and then as you compress the air it makes it hot and then as you expand the air it makes it cold and once he came up with the notion of putting the heat exhaust back into his own system he didn't make a perpetual motion machine but he made a heat engine that could go as long as you kept a fire going somewhere for a long old time uh, you didn't have to add any fuel except for the fuel for the fire which was obviously much less and all you had to do is make sure that a guy could keep the fire going and that your fittings were tight enough that you didn't keep losing heat. And that, of course, was the real reason that something invented in 1816 did not immediately blow up is because the engineering and the metallurgy of the time was not quite up to it. Sterling kept tinkering with it. He finalized his patent in 1840 and uh, using uh, something called the economizer, which I love, um, or the regenerator, also known as. And this is the sort of the, the notion, like I said, of putting your exhaust back into the system so that you're not just heating it once, you're heating it a bunch of times, creating a closed air cycle. And the Stirling engine, for example, was able to run whole factories in Dundee, but uh, the trouble is that the cylinders kept blowing out. So the steam engine guy is like, well, yeah, you're paying more for coal, but when those cylinders go out, you are screwed factory-wise. So the Stirling engine becomes, I don't want to say a curiosity, but sort of a side trail. And in fact, it does become fundamentally forgotten once steam engines get really, really good. And it is literally rediscovered in the 50s by hobbyists because the last guy to make them made a bunch of them, couldn't sell them, and they sat in a warehouse for a while. They were bought by a company that then sold them to universities as, hey, this is a cool uh, gadget. Maybe your mechanical engineers could learn from it. And so the Sterling engine sort of just goes away for a big old time. Also, however, in the 1800s, you've got a fellow named Augustine Mouchot, who in 1866, although he loudly claims to have nothing to do with the Stirling engine, is a liar, develops a solar engine, which deliberately takes its heat rather than from a fire being tended by a lazy Yorkshireman from the good old sun. And he develops a parabolic collector. Uh, he's the first guy to, to come with a parabolic solar collector. So he does that. 
and he builds a solar engine that can, in fact, work without fuel, except for with the sun, and be a heat engine like Stirling engines, and so therefore run a great long time. And by 1866, the technology is a little better. Augustine Mouchot keeps getting permission. He, he gets sent to Algeria uh, to build his solar engines in Algeria, where there's ample sunlight forever. And sure enough, it works great. He comes back to France, sort of a hero. But by 1878, which it, at which he is exhibiting his last tranche of solar engines, coal has become dirt cheap in France, thanks to the Chevalier-Cobden Treaty of 1860. Uh, before 1860, France and England were in a uh, spate of trade wars. In 1849, Robert Peel famously institutes free trade as the cornerstone of British prosperity and simultaneously accidentally starves Ireland to death. Not that he really cared, but he didn't do it on purpose. And the British plan then is to get other countries to sign up for free trade agreements so that the vast amount of British manufacturers can be sold overseas and make a bigger profit. And uh, they, of course, are manufacturing these things with coal because Britain is amply supplied with coal as opposed to France. France is at this point uh, in 1860, uh, both under the rule of an emperor and looking greedily at Mexico, which is another sunny place with very little coal. And so the expanded adoption of solar power, Robin, is a bank shot, and it involves Emperor Napoleon not signing onto the Chevalier-Cobden Treaty, as in fact, all of the producers of uh, French manufactured goods were screaming at him not to do, <laughs> and also that uh, France keeps Mexico. And that possibly could have been done just by not having uh, Napoleon encourage him so much, encourage Maximilian. The, the the Mexican Revolution is the harder one of these to undo. I grant you that. But if, for example, the, the French troops that are sent to Mexico stay there and are not withdrawn in 1865, so once again, all you're doing is making the Emperor Napoleon III more bullheaded than even the Emperor Napoleon III normally is, an easier lift, there is a possibility that Maximilian's genuine attempts at land reform might have built enough of a small farmer or large small farmer base that he could have withstood the sort of very aggressive uh, Mexican national aristocracy's opposition to him. I don't put his chances very high, but a French Mexico is the ideal place for a ton of solar power because, again, Mexico's coal is basically localized to Coahuila, which is right up next to the border of Texas. So you can imagine perhaps a slightly longer civil war in which Texas invades Coahuila uh, because that's what the Texans wanted to do anyway after they won the civil war was start another fight with Mexico. And that that blow to the national prestige is what allows Maximilian to, um, uh, to remain in charge. And that, therefore, you have a combination of Maximilian, you have Augustine Michaud going around with his solar engines looking for sunny places, and you have a Mexico that is desperately in need of industrialization because the Texans, in theory, are not going to just stop with Coahuila. So there's any number of sort of uh, an orbit, if you will, not necessarily one switch that you can pull that will produce a large domestically encouraged solar power industry in France and in France's colonies, Algeria and protectorate of Mexico. So 
that I think is the best way is, uh, as now the, the, the trick to making, uh, solar power super acceptable is to make it cheaper than other kinds of power. And, uh, if you can't do that by, by the way that we're doing now, which is vastly improving solar cells, um, you do it the other, other way by making coal super expensive and hard to get. And that is something that God already did for the French. So I feel like, um, you know, second guessing him is, is not my job as a time traveler, Robin. Right. So the solar cells in Mexico are presumably used for, you know, all the things that you use power for, including heat for ovens, which I guess results in foie gras tacos and, <laughs> uh, the beans, uh, might be uh, somewhat cassoulet inspired. So this, I think opens up not only uh, sort of energy production uh, vistas, but uh, a whole uh, different world of uh, of food fusion. And solar ovens, by the way, go back to the 1830s in practical use. Uh, Sir John Herschel used solar ovens to cook his food in South Africa while he was doing astronomical observations because, once more, couldn't find anything to burn in his stove. So there you go. And uh, the solar oven, yeah, obviously that would be a, a big part of it. And... I'm here for Franco-Mexican fusion cuisine, quite frankly. I, I think that would be interesting. Right. And perhaps even better for the planet if a lot of coal stays in the ground. It's always <laughs> deemed too expensive to use. We do not have uh, the level of greenhouse gas uh, warming that we're facing today, and uh, uh, which I think possibly uh, even more than refried cassoulet was what time incorporated had in mind when they gave you this, this assignment what they were what they were angling for the, yeah i think that the downside from time incorporated's perspective if i may speak for my nominal superiors is the very real risk of a con- winning confederacy might be a slightly high price to pay for an extra degree centigrade <laughs> and so that is a, a a little iffy and dodgy and of course keeping napoleon the uh, 3rd in power long enough to cement the uh, autarky and solar power complex has its own down check on France in terms of civil liberties and stuff like that. So, you know, you, you take the bitter with the sweet in time alteration, Robin. That's how it works. Right. Well, the solar power, though, is sort of decentralized, right? Because you don't have to buy it from anybody. You just have to have a, a sunny area. So that might imply, you know, countervailing political forces of people who, you know, if you can generate your own power... That's one less thing the authorities can cut you off from and one yeah. more way they can assert uh, your uh, local independence. And I, and I certainly see that being, you know, again, in a world where there is a Confederacy and an independent Texas and the South obviously very full of sun and the coal being in <clears throat> West Virginia, good old non-slave owning Virginia. The South might very easily have adopted solar power from its neighbor to the South, Mexico. And you might be seeing giant solar powered steel mills in Alabama, the way that you see, uh, saw in our timeline, conventional, uh, coal powered ones. Similarly, the Southwest in this alternate timeline, if it begins to fracture away from the union, certainly solar power is a useful thing to do. The thing you can't really do in 1878 or now with solar power is run a train. So I feel like the railroad industry is still going to have some interest in digging coal out. But once more, if coal is so expensive that you have to uh, use it for trains, you're once more encouraging that fractionalization that you're talking about because you can't build as many railroads as economically because it's very it's much more expensive to run them in in the north and in England. Railroads are still a big thing. Everyone loves them because we got ample coal in Kentucky, West Virginia and Pennsylvania. But a lot of places in the world don't have coal and maybe start taking a, a, a second look 
at French solar power. We're also in a situation where the French have adopted a confrontational policy towards England in the 1860s, not an alliance policy. And that has knock-on effects, especially if the French are saying to all of England's tropical colonies like India, hey, you've got a lot of sunlight. Why are you buying your coal from the hated British when you could just let the good old sun run your factories at a small nominal charge to a French solar engine company? Yeah. Solar power, the power of local autonomy. Yeah. And I suppose <laughs> and if, slavery and imperialism, fine, whatever. Yes. <laughs> and I suppose if coal is uh, uh, very expensive and, and is only on trains, I guess that creates a vision in this alternate universe where the desperados are knocking over the trains in order to steal the coal. To very take the possibly. Fuel. Yep. That, that does make a great train robbery scenario where the, the train is running out and you get the, you know, Pancho Villa instead of uh, having nothing to do with uh, robbing the banks in New Mexico is riding out there to steal coal so that uh, the, the Mexican national or Mexican Imperial, I should say, uh, train lines are still running. I think that'd be fun. Yeah. So I don't know if we, uh, like you say, it's there's some heavy trade-offs. So I don't know if you want to necessarily install this alternate history, but it's certainly one to consider as a, a fun, uh, quite different version of history to uh, have swashbuckling adventures in. Yeah. I mean, it's um, uh, if, if you've got sort of slave-owning Francophile hippies, that's quite a look. I'll, I'll tell you that. And then also, as you say, refried cassoulet. So what's not to love? Well, I guess, Ken, either one of us or perhaps Wolf are going to have to go out and invent refried cassoulet. But we'll be back a mere week from now with more nonsense, much like this nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Let the sunshine of needed support flow into our Patreon, as have such glowing backers as... Gray St. Quentin. Jay Moore. Jeff F. Jeff Cars. And Jean-Francois Parody. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Unnerve your co-workers with our latest design, quietly judging you. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>